When the beginning of this journey was announced, everywhere among the Christian people, men of the lowest social class and even worthless women laid claim to this miracle in every way, in every part of their bodies. One man scratched his cheeks, drew a cross with the flowing blood, and showed it to everyone. Another showed the spot in his eye, by means of which he had been blinded, as a sign that a heavenly announcement had urged him to undertake the journey. Another, either by using the juices of fresh fruits or some other kind of dye, painted on some small piece of his body the shape of a cross. They claimed, by means of this fraudulent and deceitful exhibition, that God had showed himself in them. I swear by God that I saw when I was living in Beauvais. In the middle of the day, clouds approached each other somewhat obliquely, so that they barely seemed to form anything other than the shape of a crane or a stork. When suddenly, many voices cried out that a cross had been sent to them in the sky. What I am about to say is ridiculous, but it has been testified to by authors who are not ridiculous. A poor woman set out on the journey, and a goose, filled with I do not know what instructions, clearly exceeding the laws of its own dull nature, followed the woman. Lo and behold, rumor, flying on the wings of Pegasus, filled the castles and cities with the news that even geese had been sent by God to liberate Jerusalem. Not only did they deny that this wretched woman was leading the goose, but they said that the goose led her. They swear that at Cambrai, with people standing on all sides, the woman walked through the middle of the church to the altar, and the goose followed behind in her footsteps, with no one urging it on. Soon after, we've learned, the goose died in Lorraine. It would certainly have gone more directly to Jerusalem if, the day before setting out, it had made a holiday meal of itself for its mistress. We have attached this incident to this true history, so that men may know they have been warned against permitting Christian seriousness to be trivialized by belief in vulgar fables. For this is just one more abominable wickedness in this gathering of people on foot, who were stupid and insanely irresponsible, which, it cannot be doubted, is hateful to God and unbelievable to all the faithful. For never let the hearts of the faithful believe that the Lord Jesus is willing for the tomb of his most holy body to be visited by stupid and irrational animals, and for these to be the leaders of Christian souls, those souls which he had rescued which he had deigned to ransom with his own precious blood from the filthiness of idols. Since when he was ascending into the heavens, he appointed as leaders, guides, and teachers of his people, men who were very holy and worthy of God, not stupid and irrational animals. Hello, and welcome to History of the Utremer, episode 2.10, A Wild Goose Chase. Today, the Peasants' Crusade comes to an end. Or does it? Well, to be sure, the idea of an expedition led by charismatic preachers like Peter the Hermit will die a bloody death. But its memory will most definitely live on. The idea of sources and bias has been a constant theme throughout the last few episodes, 
Back in episode 2.7, we talked at length about the French perspective, best embodied by the writing of the three French monks who adapted the Gesta Francorum, a first-hand account of the First Crusade, likely written by an Italo-Norman knight. This French perspective was much more geared towards the aims of the Reform Papacy, which considered crusading a useful tool in finally bringing the knights of Western Europe under the thumb of the church. Crusading, though not yet known by that name, was to be the knight's version of monastic service, a way to not only steer the knights away from preying on the church's assets, but maybe even advance the aims of the church. This focus on this new form of armed pilgrimage as a knightly endeavor meant that writers adopting the French perspective were antipathetic to the more popular elements of the First Crusade, embodied by Peter the Hermit's movement. Let's talk about our opening a bit. Most of it, except one bit we'll talk about in a few minutes, is pulled from Guibert of Nogent's Dei Gesta per Francos, The Deeds of God Through the Franks. Guibert is, of course, one of these monks adapting the Justa Francorum. We've talked a good bit about how their adaptations of the Justa Francorum were not only literary embellishment of the anonymous author's rustic Latin, but also an attempt to reinterpret the events of the First Crusade to be more in line with Reformed Church perspectives. Notice, for example, the change Guibert makes to the title. Justa Francorum translates to The Deeds of the Franks, while Guibert's is The Deeds of God Through the Franks. After all, these events were clearly the will of God. The Franks were the instrument of God, and thus subordinate to God's supervisor on earth, the Church. Guibert is also very open about his bias for viewing the crusade as the expression of the piety of the knightly aristocratic class. And this bias makes even more sense when you consider that he himself was a member of the aristocracy. It was very common for the same families that produced knights to also send their sons to monasteries. Towards the end of his life, Guibert wrote his memoirs, and, well, according to him, Guibert's mother had a very rough pregnancy that almost took both of their lives, and so his family promised to dedicate him to the church if he survived. Actually, my grandmother did much the same when my mother was pregnant with me. Mom got appendicitis about six months into her pregnancy and had to be operated on, obviously super risky for the both of us, so grandma apparently made some promises to her church and to God and whatnot, and well, I'm the only one of my siblings that was baptized, because my grandma made sure of it. Uh, my parents otherwise aren't really into uh, organized religion. Anyway, both Guibert and his mom, like me and my mom, survived. His father did die eight months later, but Guibert says this was actually a blessing in disguise as his father would have broken the vow and made Guibert follow the path of a knight. Instead, Guibert became a monk. But he didn't forget his roots. When talking about the martyred knights of the First Crusade, Guibert says the following. We have heard of many who, captured by the pagans in order to deny the sacraments of faith, preferred to expose their heads to the sword than to betray the Christian faith in which they had been instructed. Among them, I shall select one, knight and aristocrat, but more illustrious for his character than all others of his family or social class. From the time he was a child, I knew him, and I watched his fine disposition develop. Moreover, he and I came from the same region, and his parents held benefices from my parents and paid them homage. And we grew up together, and his whole life and development were an open book to me. End quote. 
So not only does Guibert choose an aristocratic knight as the exemplar for the brave martyrs of the First Crusade, but he chooses one he knew personally and makes sure to underline the fact that they came from the same place, and if anything, this brave knight was just a rung underneath him. On the ladder of medieval European high society. It of course follows that Guibert was also very opposed to the popular participation in the First Crusade. Last time I mentioned his description of Peter the Hermit's army. Germans, and the shit of our own people. So yeah, no love lost for these folks. In the introduction to the English translation of Guibert's First Crusade narrative, historian Robert Levine says, quote, Poor people are not merely comic, but dangerous, to themselves, as Guibert's version of the story of Peter the Hermit indicates, and to others. The story of the goose is a comic reflection of a persistently urgent problem on the First Crusade. Guibert addresses the problem of famine often, and expresses particularly warm sympathy towards aristocratic hunger. Levine then quotes Guibert directly, How many jaws and throats of noblemen were eaten away by the roughness of this bread? How terribly were their fine stomachs revolted by the bitterness of the putrid liquid? Good God, we think that they must have suffered so, these men who remembered their high social position in their native land where they had been accustomed to great ease and pleasure, and now could find no hope or solace in any external comfort, as they burned in the terrible heat. Here's what I and I alone think. Never had so many noble men exposed their own bodies to so much suffering for a purely spiritual benefit. End quote. The story of the goose is just one example of how Guibert and others like him contrasted the peasants of this first wave with the nobles that were to follow. But this distinction was less rooted in reality than in the biases and aims of the writers in question. We'll come to see that the composition of the armies of the Peasants' Crusade was not really particularly dissimilar from the composition of the armies of the so-called Prince's Crusade. Now, as I mentioned, most of the opening is pulled from Guibert's writing, but the last bit is actually from Albert of Aachen. Albert is the writer we've been relying on for most of the details of the Peasants' Crusade, as he's much better informed than other writers, and he's one of the few contemporaries who actually seems interested in telling the story of Peter the Hermit. However, even though he clearly seems to believe in Peter's divine mission, Albert also draws some lines. There are certain elements of this first crusading wave that even he can't tolerate. As I mentioned in episode 2.8, he criticizes Count Emiko, may his bones be ground to dust, for persecuting Jews. The tale of the goose, by the way, not only appears in Guibert and Albert's histories, but also in the Hebrew Chronicles. So it was clearly a well-known anecdote at the time. Albert actually includes the tale of the goose immediately after recounting the final fate of Emiko's army. As we talked about last time, Emiko's forces abandoned their siege of the city of Moshon when they heard that the Hungarian King Kalman was on the way, and in the mayhem, the residents of Moshon launched an assault on the fleeing forces, killing many of them and scattering the rest. Albert has this to say about what happened at Moshon, quote, In this, the hand of God is believed to have been against the pilgrims, who had sinned in his eyes by excessive impurities and fornicating unions, and had punished the exiled Jews who are admittedly hostile to Christ, with a great massacre, rather from greed for their money than for divine justice, since God is a just judge and commands no one to come to the yoke of the Catholic faith against his will or under compulsion. End quote. He then quickly recounts the tale of the goose, calling it, as we heard in the opening, 
an abominable wickedness. Albert's stance is very interesting. He disapproves of the massacres of Jews, but mostly because it was done for greed. But he does admit like, oh well, the Jews are hostile to Christ, but you're not supposed to kill them for greed. Maybe if it had been divine justice, it would have been okay, but it wasn't. In Albert's eyes, what happened at Moshon was God punishing sinners. If Emiko had been truly pious, he would have succeeded in his siege of the city. But based on what happened, he had clearly been judged and found wanting. This retroactively proves that his persecution of Jews must have been done for the wrong reasons. In Charlemagne's Road, God's Threshing Floor, comprehending the role of Hungary in the First Crusade, historian James Plumtree points out how Albert uses the events in Hungary that we talked about last time as some sort of litmus test for the worthiness of the various crusading forces. He says, quote, With its accounts of the attempted journeys across the land, the Historia Jerusalemitana positions Hungary as God's divine baton. In deliberate contrast, the second book of the Historia presents the successful journey of Godfrey of Bouillon's forces as an exemplum of how it should be done and a chastisement of what came before. End quote. And there are definitely some behaviors that Albert finds entirely abhorrent, such as claiming that a goose was acting on behalf of God. These could not be tolerated at all. And in fact, even when he's speaking more or less positively about Peter's forces, there's often an undercurrent of shock, such as when he can barely comprehend the idea of women participating in this pilgrimage. While Guibert and others like him are much more directly hostile to the Peasants' Crusade, we can't really boil Albert's perspective down to one simple emotion. Though he backed the venture in principle, there were certain actions that he found deplorable and that he criticized. And when possible, he connected this unpious behavior to the myriad setbacks that befell the armies of the Peasants' Crusade, always making sure to point out that this was the will of God. I mention all of this because it's important to keep these ideas in mind, as we now come to the final chapter of the Peasants' Crusade, which will end in abject failure. This failure will not only feed the immediate history of the rest of the First Crusade, but also how the story gets told. This idea that success on the crusade was linked to pious behavior and failure was linked to sin will persist throughout. The traumatic events to come will be viewed by many through a very personally religious lens. The trials and tribulations of the first crusade were a test of faith, and the failure of this first wave will be taken as a sign of how exactly God would punish those who failed the test. As I quoted Albert saying in the opening, Never let the hearts of the faithful believe that the Lord Jesus is willing for the tomb of his most holy body to be visited by stupid and irrational animals. So let's get into what actually went down. When last we left our plucky murder hobo heroes, they just crossed the river Sava into the Byzantine Roman Empire. The first group to do so was the one led by Walter Sansevoir. Walter's army had so far been relatively well behaved. But remember that 16 of his men had been arrested, and then stripped naked by the residents of Zemun for attempting to rob a marketplace. So Walter was a bit ticked off when he arrived at Belgrade in early May. He started off by immediately demanding food from the military commander there at Belgrade. Now remember that Urban's plan had been to send an army leaving from Europe in mid-August. That was still months off so there were no preparations laid for dealing with these pilgrims. The commander sent word to the provincial capital of Nish, where the governor resided, 
a guy we've already met, Niketas. Niketas acted quickly. The first thing he did was to send word to the emperor, Alexios Komnenos, in Constantinople. And then he began to gather a military force to make sure he'd have the firepower he needed just in case these pilgrims decided to misbehave. But we'll come back to that. Meanwhile, Walter Sons of Wach started to get a bit impatient. I'll let Albert of Aachen take over here. The same night that the naked and empty-handed comrades were taken in, Walter asked the city magistrate for a license to buy the necessities of life. The officials considered the damage and the people spying on their land, and they forbade all sales to them. Because of this, Walter and all his company were seriously troubled in their minds, and they began forcibly to seize and to lead away the Bulgars' herds of cattle and sheep which had been led out into the fields to graze and were wandering here and there. It came to the point where a serious quarrel began to develop between the pilgrims and the Bulgars, and arms were joined. Some 140 of the pilgrims were cut off from the great number of their fellowship, and fleeing, they came to a certain chapel. The Bulgars besieged the chapel, where they burnt 60 of the men shut up in it, and inflicted severe wounds on very many more of the rest, who only just managed to slip away from the enemy and from the chapel to save their lives. After this disaster and weakening of his men, Walter abandoned his comrades, who were fleeing all around, and he passed through the Bulgarian woods in eight days, and withdrew to a very rich city in the middle of the Bulgarian kingdom, called Nish, where he found the leader and prince of the country, and reported to him all the outrage and the damage inflicted upon himself, and he easily obtained justice from him, with regard to all these things. Indeed, that same lord of the country bestowed both arms and money on him in reconciliation and gave him a safe conduct through the Bulgarian towns of Sofia, Philippopolis, and Adrianople, and a license to buy. And Walter marched down with all his band as far as the imperial city of Constantinople, which is the capital of all the empire of the Greeks. Moreover, as he marched down, he entreated the Lord Emperor himself with all possible urgency in a most humble petition that he might peacefully take a breathing space in his kingdom with license to buy the necessities of life, until he had Peter the Hermit as comrade-in-arms, at whose instigation and inspiration he had started the journey. And with their thousands of men, they would cross the Straits of St. George in boats, and thus be able more safely to oppose the Turks and all the battle formations of the Gentiles. All this was carried out, and the Lord Emperor, Alexios by name, graciously responded and granted everything he sought. End quote. So basically, Walter's forces started raiding and got smacked down by the locals, very similar to what was happening in Hungary around the same time. At Nish, though, Walter met with Niketas, the prince that Albert mentions, really more of a Byzantine bureaucrat, who was a bit less heavy-handed, and who succeeded in escorting Walter's army down to Constantinople without incident. This is also where Albert includes his first mention of the Byzantine Roman emperor, Alexios Komnenos. It's an almost casual mention, as of course, in Albert's account, the First Crusade was the result of Peter the Hermit's efforts. But Alexios' response shows a high level of commitment to this endeavor. As Christopher Tierman points out in God's War, quote, It says much for Alexios' involvement in the project that he was so accommodating, not least as he must have been expecting the Westerners to arrive some months later when local provisions would have been more plentiful. The speed in conveying Walter Sons of Wah to the imperial capital shows that the Greeks knew that Peter the Hermit's larger force was only days behind, 
presenting a potentially dangerous competition for food. Although his regime rested on recent military success against the Pechenegs in the Balkans and some moderate successes in Asia Minor and the Aegean, Alexius I had witnessed too many political coups, one of them his own in 1081, to feel entirely secure. In 1094-1095, there was a Balkan invasion across the Danube by Cumans, trouble in Serbia, directly on the Crusaders' line of march, stirrings of a tax revolt, and a dangerous conspiracy in the army to replace Alexios by Nikiforos Diogenes, son of the Emperor Romanos IV, the loser at Manzikert. Pressure on food in the strategically vital Balkan provinces, and still more in the capital itself, could erode Alexios's precarious support. Alexios needed Western aid, but could not allow it to disrupt his delicate political arrangements. A hungry, resentful population in Constantinople would have been very dangerous. It was less, as his daughter, Anna Komnini, claimed half a century later, that the emperor feared a Western attack. More that he was wary of food riots or dissident Greeks recruiting the foreigners to overthrow him. From the first, Alexis attempted to control his unexpectedly numerous allies through a mixture of hospitality, generosity, and firm direction. Careful always not to commit too many of his own stretched resources to their cause. End quote. As happened last time in Hungary, though, the relatively minor conflict brought about by Walter's army was only a prelude to what would happen once Peter's much larger force came into the picture. Walter had clearly told not only Alexios, as Albert mentions, but also Niketas that Peter was on his way as well, because Niketas started preparing for their arrival immediately. As I mentioned, part of these preparations was making sure that his own military forces were at the ready. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that Niketas' troops were primarily made up of Pechenegg horse archers. We've talked about the Pechenegs a few times. Mostly in Season 1, but just in case you're blanking, the Pechenegs were Turks from the steppe. Their relationship with the Roman Empire had been a sort of love-hate one. It had oscillated between raiders, invaders, and mercenaries for centuries. The situation had gotten particularly heated in the mid-11th century, during the reign of Constantinos Monomachos. Check episode 1.5 if you need a refresher. But in 1091, Alexios Komnenos had obliterated an invading Pechenik force at the Battle of Levunion. By all accounts, this battle was really more like an absolute slaughter, and afterwards the survivors were absorbed into the Roman armed forces, which was pretty standard imperial practice, stretching back to how the empire had dealt with groups like the Goths half a millennium earlier. From that moment on, the Pechenegs ceased to be an independent polity. They would survive for a while as a vital element of the Roman army, but eventually they would assimilate into other Balkan groups like the Bulgarians or the Hungarians. Still, it's important to remember that the Pechenegs were not Christians, at least not in the majority. And for the Franks, they would have seemed almost indistinguishable from any other Turks and wholly alien. With this in mind, the suspicion and paranoia surrounding the Roman governors and their soldiers that's present in Albert of Aachen's account, becomes a little more understandable. As we talked about last time, Albert reports an evil plot orchestrated by the governor of the Hungarian city of Zemun and this Byzantine governor, Niketas. Peter's forces ended up carrying out a brutal sack of the city of Zemun. Albert reports that two men in particular seem to have taken up the role of military commanders in this assault. A foot soldier named Godfrey Burel and a knight named Reynold of Broy. 
this is a sign that there seems to have been some sort of military hierarchy, either already present or more likely naturally developing within this movement. Peter was a charismatic leader and all, but he was not a military commander. We can imagine the various different knights and other soldiers vying with each other for primacy. This might have even encouraged violent acts like the sack of Zemun, as success in battle would have been one way to assert authority, and providing pillaged loot to pilgrims would have been another. Now, as I mentioned last time, Peter's army stayed in the burnt-out husk that had once been Zemun for a few days before making preparations to cross the Sava River. Niketas, who was aware of what was going on in Zemun, began to steel himself for the worst. He evacuated Belgrade and set his Pechenek soldiers to the task of controlling the crossing of the river, trying as much as possible to limit them to one particular crossing point. I'll let Albert pick it up from here, as he's basically the only source for the details of these events. Uh, remember that he calls Zemun Malawila, Evilville. Quote, The aforesaid Duke Niketas learned of this victory and the bloody massacre of the Hungarians and saw their bodies, which had been cut to pieces by weapons, most of them destroyed by hideous wounds, which the Danube carried with its turbulent waves to Belgrade, where the riverbed turns and continues its journey a mile distant from Evilville. He called together his men and took advice from all of them, then, because he was shaken by fear, he refused to wait for Peter any longer in Belgrade, but instead arranged to move to Nish, taking with him the entire treasure of Belgrade, in the hopes of a defense against the forces of the French, Romans, and Germans, because this fortified city was enclosed by the strength of walls. Indeed, he put his fellow citizens to flight through the forests and the mountainous and uninhabited places with their herds, until the help of the imperial army had been summoned whereby he might oppose Peter's companions and avenge the Hungarians, in keeping with the friendship and treaty he had concluded with Guz, the Count and Prince of Evilville. Six days had passed after these events, when a messenger was swiftly sent to Peter, from a town of people unknown to the Franks, to make sure he was aware of the threats, saying, The King of Hungary has assembled an army from all his realm to avenge his men, and is about to go into battle against you and not even one of your men is sure to escape his weapons. For grief and lamentation for the dead have roused the king and all their kinsmen and friends. Therefore, cross the river Sava as quickly as possible and hasten your journey away from here. Peter realized the anger of the king and the great seriousness of the alliance against him, so he left Evilville with all his companions, taking with them, however, all their spoils and herds and plundered horses, and set out to cross the Sava. But he found few ships, only a hundred and fifty in number on the whole riverbank, in which such a great number could immediately cross and escape in fear of the king who was in close pursuit. Because of this, as many as possible of those for whom there were no ships, tried their best to cross using timbers joined together and fastened with willow branches. But while they were tossing about on their raft of joined timbers and willow branches, with no way of steering, they were separated from their companions, and most of them perished, shot by the arrows of the Pechenegs who inhabited Bulgaria. Now Peter, seeing that his men were dying and drowning, ordered the Bavarians, Swabians, and the rest of the Germans to help their Frankish brothers. In accordance with their promise of obedience, they immediately brought in seven rafts and sank the seven little boats of the Pechenegs, along with those who were on them, taking only seven people alive, whom they brought into Peter's presence and slaughtered on his orders. 
After he had thus avenged his men and the river Sava had been crossed, Peter entered the huge and very extensive forests of the Bulgars with his carts of food supplies and all his equipment and plunder from Belgrade. End quote. Yeah, Albert just mentions that they had plunder from Belgrade without ever outright saying that they sacked the city, which presumably they did, probably with ease as Niketas had had the city emptied of valuables and people. I should also mention that the recurrence of the number seven, you know, seven boats, seven Pechenek prisoners, um, it's just a poetic trope. It doesn't really mean anything. Peter went to Niche next and tried to negotiate the purchase of supplies from Niketas. Niketas at first agreed, but only in return for hostages, the military commanders Godfrey Burrell and another man named Walter Fitzwalleran. The hostages were handed over to Niketas, and he gave them access to marketplaces, and also started up a collection in the city to feed the poorest members of the army, who would have otherwise been unable to afford food. Afterwards, the hostages were returned to Peter, and the army, presumably well supplied, left Niche and started on the path to Constantinople. However, the recent chaos, first at Zemun and then when crossing the river, seems to have caused a breakdown in the organization of Peter's army, as Albert then records seemingly random destruction and pillaging by his forces. The agreement with Niketas and resupplying at Niche appears to have not been enough to ensure the army's good behavior, and things continued to escalate further. Back to Albert again, quote, when the hostages had been faithfully restored to Peter by the prince, a hundred men of the Swabians withdrew for a short time from the rear of Peter's army, on account of a most vile dispute with a certain Bulgar, which came about in the evening while selling and buying. They set fire to seven mills, which were situated in the river below the aforesaid bridge, and reduced them to ashes. They even set some houses which were outside the town on fire, with a similar conflagration, to satisfy their rage. But the citizens, seeing that their buildings were being consumed by fire, approached their Dukniketas as a unanimous assembly, declaring that Peter and all his followers were false Christians and nothing more than robbers and not peaceful men who had killed the Duke of Belgrade's Pechenegs and very many Hungarians of Evilville and now had dared to start this fire, a wicked repayment for their kindness. When the Duke heard of these outrages and the complaints of his men, he ordered that they should all take up arms eagerly with the entire cavalry which he had brought together in that place, knowing about the attack on Evilville, and they should pursue the pilgrims without delay, so bringing on their heads all the evils which had been visited on themselves. Thereupon, following this order from the duke, the Bulgars, the Cumans, many Hungarians, and the Pechenegs, who had come together as an assembly of men determined on the defense of the city, snatched up bows of horn and bone, put on chain mail, and having attached their standards each to a spear, they pursued Peter, who was proceeding unsuspectingly with his men. And without mercy, they beheaded and stabbed those who were slow and at the tail end of the army, and they seized the carts and wagons, which were following behind in their sluggish way, carrying off their possessions and herds, along with women, girls, and young boys, who have been found as exiles and prisoners in the land of Bulgaria right up to the present day. Directly upon this sudden destruction and slaughter of pilgrims, a certain man, Lambert by name, who escaped by the speed of his horse, approached Peter and reported to him all that had happened and how the beginnings of the evils and deceptions were the work of the Swabians because of the fire they had made. Peter, a mile distant, had known nothing of all these things. He was seriously troubled at the words of the man who brought the information, and he called together the more prudent and intelligent men from the army, 
and spoke to them thus, saying, A very serious and severe misfortune threatens us, arising from the rage of the senseless Germans. Very many indeed of our men have been slain with those same Swabians, by Duke Niketas and his guard, killed by bow and sword, in vengeance for the fire which was utterly unknown to me. However, all our wagons have been held back with our riches and herds. I see nothing more useful we may do about these things than to turn back to the duke and to make peace with him, because our men have acted unjustly towards him when his citizens had peacefully supplied us with everything we needed. When the army had heard Peter's speech and judgment, they turned around and retraced their steps to that same city of Nish, so that Peter might make his apologies and thus appease the duke, so that the army might recover their prisoners and wagons. While Peter, therefore, along with the more prudent of his men, was fully occupied with his project and plan and was composing his apology with careful words, a thousand foolish men, headstrong Juventus, youths of excessive irresponsibility, a wild and undisciplined set of people with neither cause nor reason, advanced in a great assault over the stone bridge to the walls and gate of the city. Another thousand similar frivolous youths, rushing together across the ford and the bridge with loud shouting and rage, joined them in support, refusing to listen to Peter, their leader, who along with all sensible men forbade what they were doing and was ordering peace to be made. In this most serious disagreement of the quarreling troops, the whole army, except those two thousand men, stayed back with Peter, who had forbidden this mutiny, and they gave absolutely no assistance to them. The Bulgars, seeing this division among the people, and that these two thousand could easily be overcome, burst out from two gates, risking arrows and lances, and serious injury, and thus they checked them with great force and put them all to flight. Fifty of them fell from the bridge and sank beneath the waters and were drowned. Three hundred on the other side of the bridge began to flee towards unfamiliar shallows. Some of them were killed by weapons, others by water. At last, those who had been held back from this madness and who had stayed with Peter in a plantation of trees on the other side of the river saw that their comrades were being massacred in such a savage martyrdom and they could no longer keep themselves from helping them. They put on chainmail and swords and whether Peter was willing or not, they ran together to the bridge. At this point, fighting broke out in a cruel manner on this side and that, with arrows, swords, and lances, but as the Bulgars were in front of the ford and the bridge, the pilgrims could not cross over by any means, and they were vigorously put to flight. End quote. Now, there's a lot to question here, but what strikes me immediately is the similarity to what happened at Zemun. Last week, I mentioned that Albert says Peter was stirred to vengeance by the arms and clothes of the 16 men who had been detained by the Zemunians, and he decided to attack the city for that reason. Even though this runs counter to his portrayal of Peter as a very holy and pious and patient man. And the description of the attack focuses on two men, Godfrey and Reynold, who seem to have led the charge. In this case, we have Peter choosing not to attack, despite the fact that he was just as provoked, if not more, than he'd been at Zemun. Elements of his army had been killed and taken prisoner. And the attack happens against his orders. Maybe Zemun actually played out more like this. It's just that the sources Albert spoke to either didn't know or chose to keep that info to themselves. Or maybe this attack on Nish played out more like Zemun, and Albert's sources are simply trying to exonerate Peter of the blame. Not necessarily for attacking the city, but for failing to be victorious. Remember, 
for these medieval folks, failure was a sign that God was not with you. At Zemun, Peter's army had won and sacked the city. Here at Nish, they were routed. By saying the attack happened without Peter's blessing, it relieves him of the burden of having failed, and thus of being unworthy in the eyes of God. Another interesting element here is the rambunctious rebellion of the Juventus, the youth. Now, the connotations this word had are actually very interesting, and though the traditional translation is youth or young people, it might have had less to do with age and more to do with a particular type of social status. We'll be talking more about this in detail in the future, so just tuck it away in your memory for now. Juventus. Got that stored away? Good. After this failed attack on Nish, Peter's army was completely scattered by the forces of the city, and not only did they lose all their supply wagons, but Peter himself had to flee. Going back to Albert now, cooked. The Duke's soldiers inflicted great slaughter and took many captives from the army that had been held back. Also, a wagon on which Peter's chest full of countless gold and silver was captured and held and was taken back to Nish at the same time as the prisoners and put in the Duke's treasury, while the rest of the booty was divided among the soldiers. Men without number were killed, boys carried off with their mothers, women married and unmarried, of whom the number is not known. Peter and all his band who were able to escape did so through very thick and extensive woodland, some scattering over the steep slopes of the mountains and wilderness. They all scattered as sheep hasten from wolves. At length, after this escape, Peter, Reynold of Broy, Walter, son of Walleran of Bretoy, Godfrey Burel, Fulcher of Orléans, all of these, with only 50 men, met by chance on the top of a certain mountain. And no more than these few of the 40,000 seemed to have survived. Then Peter, contemplating the serious weakening of his people and army, was reflecting anxiously on different things and lamenting with loud sighs the scattered legions and the thousands of his men who had fallen, while only one of the Bulgars had died, and he wondered if any one of the 40,000 who had fled and been scattered was still alive. So he spoke and gave instructions, and accordingly, those fugitives who had halted with him on the top of the mountain made a great noise with signals and horns, so that the pilgrims, wherever they were scattered over the mountains and forests and wilderness, might hear the signal from Peter and their fellows, and turn back to be collected into one, to continue the journey they had undertaken. Nor had the day sunk to a close before about 7,000 heard the signal and assembled. Brought together thus and turned back from their scattered ways, they set out about their journey once more. They approached a certain city, which had been evacuated by its citizens, where they pitched camp and awaited their comrades who had fled and been scattered. But they were able to find or search out very little food in the wilderness and suffered great hunger because they had lost over 2,000 wagons and carts which had carried corn, barley, and meat for food, and they found no one selling or offering anything. It was in the month of July that these misfortunes had befallen them, when in this region, the corn and ripe crops had already turned golden for the harvest. Since the people were distressed by hunger, it seemed a good idea to the most prudent counselors that the ripe crops found on the plains around the deserted and empty city might be roasted with fire and the roasted grains shaken out to sustain the hungry people. And indeed, the people lived for three days on this small sustenance of corn until those who had fled and been scattered were gathered together again to the number of 30,000, all except the 10,000 who had died." End quote. So, according to Albert at least, Peter's army had lost not only its provisions, but a quarter of its members, 
thanks to the shenanigans at Nish. Things seemed to have improved shortly after, though. Niketas informed the emperor of what had happened, and Alexio sent envoys to Peter, saying, quote, Peter, very serious complaints concerning you and your men have been brought to the Lord Emperor, because your army has pillaged and made discord in his territory. Therefore, it is his imperial decree that you may not stay more than three days in any town of his empire until you enter the city of Constantinople. However, we are instructing all the cities through which you will pass that they should peacefully sell all things to you and your men on the emperor's orders. And because you are a Christian and your companions are Christians, they should hinder your journey no further. And however much your followers have offended by their pride and rage against Duke Niketas, the emperor forgives you straight away, for he knows that you have paid heavy penalties for this wrongdoing. End quote. This is all according to Albert of Aachen, of course, who records Peter's reaction in the following way. Quote, when Peter heard this peaceful message from the Lord Emperor, he was very glad and weeping with joy, he gave thanks to God, who after so great and severe a reproach, not undeserved, had now given him and his men grace in the eyes of so magnificent and renowned an emperor. End quote. Again, the idea of God punishing wrongdoing comes up, and Albert interestingly indicates a very interesting role for the emperor, as if the emperor's forgiveness was equivalent to God's forgiveness. Just a very interesting point of view for a Latin Christian. It sounds more like what Alexios would want his forgiveness to be perceived as, and it might reflect a more direct retelling of exactly how the emperor had framed his message to Peter. The rest of Peter's journey to Constantinople continued without incident. There, according to Albert, he met face to face with the emperor. Quote, Peter, who was insignificant in stature, but great in speech and heart, was brought into the emperor's presence by his envoys, accompanied only by Fulcher, so that the emperor might see if he was as the rumors about him claimed. Peter entered and greeted the emperor confidently in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, and he related in detail how he had left his homeland in the love and service of that same Christ, and he reminded the emperor in a few words of the misfortunes he had already endured. He announced that very powerful men would be following after a short while, Counts and very noble dukes, who, like him, had decided to make the journey to Jerusalem, fired by desire to see the Lord's sepulchre. Moreover, when the emperor had seen Peter and knew from his words the purpose he had in mind, he asked what he wanted or what he desired of him. Peter begged that he might receive alms from the emperor's merciful hand, so that he and his men would have something to sustain life, and he declared how many and what an immeasurable quantity of goods he had lost because of the folly and rebelliousness of his men. The emperor was moved by pity when he heard Peter's humility and ordered 200 golden bezants to be given to him. Indeed, he paid out a measure of money to Peter's army from his coinage, called the Tetartaron. End quote. A quick side note, as we discussed in episode 1.16, Alexios had very recently reformed the Byzantine currency after the decades of inflation that had plagued the economy during the crisis years of the 11th century. The newness of this currency is why Albert has to clarify the name of this coinage. It was still mostly unknown and uh, impossible to pronounce by me. Tetter, 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 terin, tetter, tetartorum, tetarantum, tetartorata. Impossible to pronounce. Anyway, at this point, Peter's army and Walter's army, both considerably smaller than what they'd been when they'd set out, joined up. They were also joined by some random Italians the sources mention had arrived by boat at some point. Who exactly these guys were 
and what they were up to, we have no idea. They might have been, but probably weren't Italo-Normans. A bunch of Normans had actually stayed and joined up with Alexios Komnenos after the failed invasion led by Robert Giscard, see episode 1.13. But more likely, they were associated with trade activities. Back in episode 1.7, we talked at length about the Italian merchant republics, and we'll be talking about them again in the future. The First Crusade is sometimes portrayed as first contact between Latin Christendom and the rest of the world. It really wasn't. Close ties already existed between particularly Byzantium and elements in Latin Christendom. The Emperor's Varangian Guard was populated by Scandinavians and Anglo-Saxons. Italo-Norman knights had fought against and alongside the forces of the Seljuk Sultan of Rum. There was trade between Italy and Fatimid Egypt. The Armenian general Filaretos Prahamios had used Frankish knights as the core of his army. And Jewish residents of Cairo reported Germans in the armies of the Turkmen warlord Atsis. Not to mention the fact that pilgrimage to Jerusalem meant there was a near constant stream of Latin Christians traveling throughout the Eastern Mediterranean. In short, this is far from the last time armies of the First Crusade will run into random Western Europeans just chilling in the East. This might have been alien territory for individual First Crusaders, but Franks were far from an unknown in the East. Anyway, it was now August, and Alexios would have been aware that other crusading armies were on their way. For now, he had to contend with Peter's and Walter's forces. He set them up at a camp across the river, at a place called Kivotos in Greek, usually anglicized as Civitat, in the region of Hellenopolis. He couldn't keep him in Constantinople because they were already getting kind of rowdy. Apparently, they were stealing the lead from the roofs. No idea why. Now, so far... I've been quoting pretty much exclusively from Albert Aachen. As we talked about way back in episode 2.7, Albert is the best source we have for the Peasants' Crusade. Other sources are much quicker in how they deal with it. But he's not the only source. For a different perspective on the final fate of the Peasants' Crusade, we can turn to the Emperor's daughter, Anna Komnini, who in the fall of 1096 was just a few months away from her 13th birthday. Now, we've talked about Anna a few times. She's a great source, but like anyone, she's obviously super biased. And she's writing decades later. Though she has her own teenage memories to draw on, she's mostly pulling from the testimonies of friends and family who were there and, well, not children. Kinda hard to focus on foreign itinerant preachers when you've got a huge algebra midterm the next day. Anna's account is somewhat detached. She blames most of the events that are about to happen on the greed of the Latins. Greed is a common stereotype associated with the Franks, or as Anna calls them, Celts, which I find hilarious. But it also reinforces some themes present in Anna's work as a whole. From her vantage point, decades later, the Latins were basically squatters in lands that the Romans considered to be rightfully theirs, and folks like the Venetians were using their naval power to bully the Romans into giving them trade concessions. Her audience would have expected her to talk about the beginning of this era of Frankish desire for Roman wealth. So she attributes most of their behavior, including their failures, to greed. Unlike Albert, she does not view the crusading army as a chosen people. Far from it. So she doesn't connect this greed to some sort of divine punishment for sin. It's a lot more straightforward. These folks are greedy as fuck and they're always getting into trouble because of it. Let's hear exactly what she has to say. Quote, Peter, after his preaching campaign, was the first to cross the Lombardy Straits with 80,000 infantry and 100,000 horsemen. He reached the capital via Hungary. 
The Celts, as one might guess, are in any case an exceptionally hot-headed race and passionate. But let them once find an inducement, and they become irresistible. The Emperor knew what Peter had suffered before from the Turks, and advised him to wait for the other counts to arrive. But he refused, confident in the number of his followers. He crossed the Sea of Marmara and pitched camp near a small place called Helenopolis. Later, some Normans, 10,000 in all, joined him but detached themselves from the rest of the army and ravaged the outskirts of Nicaea, acting with horrible cruelty to the whole population. They cut in pieces some of the babies, impaled others on wooden spits, and roasted them over a fire. Old people were subjected to every kind of torture. The inhabitants of the city, when they learned what was happening, threw open their gates and charged out against them. A fierce battle ensued, in which the Normans fought with such spirit that the Nicaeans had to retire inside their citadel. The enemy therefore returned to Helenopolis with all the booty. There, an argument started between them and the rest who had not gone on the raid. The usual quarrel in such cases, for the latter group were green with envy. That led to brawling, whereupon the daredevil Normans broke away for a second time and took Zeregordos by assault. The Sultan, Kilij Arslan's reaction was to send his satrap, Elhanis, with a strong force to deal with them. He arrived at Zeregordos and captured it. Of the Normans, some were put to the sword and others taken prisoner. At the same time, Elhanis made plans to deal with the remainder, still with Peter. He laid ambushes in suitable places, knowing that the enemy on their way to Nicaea would fall into the trap unawares and be killed. Knowing the Celtic love of money, he also enlisted the services of two determined men who were to go to Peter's camp and there announced that the Normans, having seized Nicaea, were sharing out all the spoils of the city. This story had an amazing effect on Peter's men. They were thrown into confusion at the words share and money. Without a moment's hesitation, they set out on the road to Nicaea in complete disorder, practically heedless of military discipline and the proper arrangement which should mark men going off to war. As I have said before, the Latin race at all times is unusually greedy for wealth. But when it plans to invade a country, neither reason nor force can restrain it. They set out helter-skelter, regardless of their individual companies. Near the Dracon, they fell into the Turkish ambush and were miserably slaughtered. So great a multitude of Celts and Normans died by the Ishmaelite sword that when they gathered the remains of the fallen, lying on every side, they heaped up, I will not say a mighty ridge or hill or peak, but a mountain of considerable height and depth and width. So huge was the mass of bones. Some men of the same race as the slaughtered barbarians later when they were building a wall like those of a city used the bones of the dead as pebbles to fill up the cracks. In a way, the city became their tomb. To this very day, it stands with its encircling wall built of mixed stones and bones. End quote. One quick note I'd like to make is that Anna refers to the leader of the Turkmen forces that destroyed the crusaders at Civitat as Elhanis. She calls him a satrap of the Sultan of Rum, Kilij Arslan. Now, in Latin accounts, like Albert of Aachen's, Kilij Arslan himself is said to have been the leader of the Seljuk forces that destroyed the Peasants' Crusade. Well, kinda. They call him Suleiman, actually, because his father's name was Suleiman, and it would have been common for folks to call him Ibn Suleiman, son of Suleiman. Uh, the Latins weren't familiar with this kind of naming convention, so they just thought his name was Suleiman. Now, the name Anna uses, Elhanis, sounds very close to a Turkic name for a leader, 
Ilhan. Uh, maybe you've heard of the Ilhanate or Ilkhanate, one of the Mongol successor states. Uh, we'll actually be meeting them in the very, very far distant future. So there's a few possibilities here. One is that Anna is using the guy's title as his name. Anna is actually famously bad at writing non-Greek names. She consistently makes mistakes with Frankish names, for example, and often uses their titles as names. The other possibility is that Elhanis is actually Kili Jarslan himself. As we talked about last season, the Turks didn't actually start calling the princes in Rome sultans until a few decades later, so the title that they might have used is Ilhan, leader. Anna might have confused this title referring to Kili Jarslan as a wholly new person. If you recall, I was actually confused about this back in season 1. In episode 1.11, I said it was Kilij Arslan who dealt with the Crusaders at Civitat. Then later, I corrected this and said it was his brother. Uh, that's actually what Claude Gain says. Though I haven't been able to find the primary source which indicates that. Maybe Alhanis was the title given to his brother? It's not really clear. Uh, I might just be missing something, but I thought I'd point it out anyway. Apart from these details, the basic outline of Anna's account is corroborated by other sources such as not only Albert, but the Gestafrank Quorum. Now, the anonymous author of the Gestafrank Quorum is not really pro-Peter in the same way Albert is, but he's also not really actively opposed to him in the same way that guys like Guibert were. He wasn't present for these events himself, but he definitely met people who were, so this third viewpoint he offers us is really useful for balancing out Anna and Albert's accounts. All of these sources agree that once in Asia Minor, order and discipline broke down, and the army began to pillage these lands which were almost entirely populated by Greek Christians. Anna blames this on Celtic greed. Albert fleshes this out a bit more. A lot of what he says echoes what he had already said about how things went down at Niche, and he again places a lot of the blame on the Juventus, the youth. Though again, the way he uses the term is a bit tricky and more subtle than that. Anyway, Albert says, quote, Made licentious and unruly by inactivity and the immeasurable supplies of food, they did not listen to Peter's voice, but against his will, they went in through the mountainous regions to the land of the city of Nicaea and the territory of Suleiman, the Duke of the Turks. They plundered the herds of cattle, oxen, and sheep, flocks of goats, which belonged to the Greek subjects of the Turks, and carried them back to their comrades. Peter perceived these things with a sad heart, knowing that they would not plunder without retaliation. And so he often warned them not to seize any more of this booty, according to the emperor's advice. But he spoke to his foolish and rebellious people in vain, while these things were going well for them, and they did not yet fear that their spoils would be wrested away from them. It seemed a good idea to the spirited and conceited young men to form a detachment of the army and to find out how far they could go in seizing and carrying off booty in the meadows and pastures before the walls of the town of Nicaea, in full view of the Turks. End quote. Yeah, basically, uh, Albert blames the youth, you know? They only care about one thing, that booty. All about that booty. The Latin sources also indicate that the army tended to break up under ethnic lines. It seems that the capture of the capsule of Cerigordos that Anna mentions was carried out by the Germans and the Italians under the command of Reynold. A different Reynold from the Reynold of Broy who led the attack on Zemun, it seems. 
Anna says all these guys were just Normans, by the way. Uh, she doesn't distinguish between any of the various Frankish ethnicities. They're all Celts or Franks or simply barbarians. And when she does use specific names, like the Normans, it's usually an arbitrary choice. The Gestafrank Quorum also says that when this German-Italian detachment was surrounded by Turkmen forces at Zaragordos, this Reynold actually betrayed his countrymen and joined the Turks. Quote, After they had crossed over, they did not cease from doing all kinds of evil deeds, burning and devastating homes and churches. Finally, they reached Nicomedia, where the Longobards and the Germans separated from the Franks, because the Franks were bloated with pride. The Longobards chose a man to rule over them, named Reynold. And the Germans did likewise. And then all of them went into Romania, and they marched for four days, beyond the city of Nicaea, and came upon a castle called Exerogorgo, which was empty of all people, and they took it, and found inside enough grain and wine and meat and all other good things in abundance. However, when the Turks heard that the Christians were in the castle, they came and besieged it. Now in front of the gates of this castle was a well, and at the foot of this castle was a living spring, near which Reynold came and laid an ambush for the Turks. But when the Turks arrived on the day dedicated to St. Michael, they discovered Reynold and those that were with him, and the Turks slaughtered many of them. The rest fled into the castle. The Turks laid siege to the castle and deprived those inside of water. So terribly did our men suffer from thirst that they cut open the veins of their horses and donkeys and drank the blood. Others lowered their belts and rags down into the cesspits and squeezed the liquid into their mouths. Others urinated into the cupped hands of companions and drank it up. And still others dug into the damp earth and lying upon their backs, piled the earth up upon their chests, so parched were they from thirst. Indeed, the bishops and presbyters comforted our men and exhorted them to hold fast. This tribulation lasted for eight days. Then Reynold, leader of the Germans, made a pact with the Turks that he would betray his companions. And feigning to go forth and fight, he fled to the Turks, and many went with him. All those who refused to renounce the Lord were given the capital sentence. Others that were captured alive were divided up like sheep. Still others were used as targets for arrows, and the remainder they sold or gave away like animals. Then they took their prizes home, some to Khorasan, some to Antioch, and some to Aleppo, or wherever they lived. Such were the first ones to accept martyrdom in the name of the Lord Jesus. End quote. Exterogorgo, by the way, is how the Latins write the Greek name Zeragordos, and I'm probably mispronouncing both of those terms. Both the Gesta and Albert clarify that Peter went to Constantinople and left Walter Sansevoir in charge. The Gesta says this was because Peter could no longer control his forces, and so he just kind of gave up. Guibert, who's embellishing the Gesta, frames it this way, quote, Peter, about whom we spoke earlier, often troubled by the folly of his retinue, disturbed by frequent losses, finally gave the reins of leadership over to a well-born man, a powerful warrior from beyond the Seine, whose name was Walter, in the hope that those whom he had been unable to control by warnings might at least be restrained by military authority. Guibert later adds, Peter, called the hermit, unable to restrain the insanity of the men he gathered together, was afraid of being caught up in their undisciplined, improvident folly and wisely retreated to Constantinople. 
End quote. Albert says Peter went to Constantinople to coordinate better supplies for the army, even though earlier he does agree that Peter was losing control of this army. But as we've discussed, Albert's treading a very thin line here. He's made Peter this holy figure who kicked off this glorious pilgrimage, but he also has to reconcile the failure of this first wave. So he tries to exonerate Peter by saying it wasn't his decision to engage in all this pillaging and quote-unquote foolishness. However, he also can't paint Peter as entirely inept because that also undercuts his argument. As we heard, Anna once again blames what happened next on the Celt's greed and stupidity. She says that Elchanes, who might have been Kilij Arslan or just one of his subordinates, spread a rumor that the city of Nicaea had been taken, so as to ambush the crusaders rushing to the city to get their spoils. Albert obviously doesn't rely on the same stereotype, but he does seem to agree with Anna's characterization of these Franks as being hot-headed. He says that Suleiman, again this is what Latin historians called Kilij Arslan ibn Suleiman, started to pick off random pilgrims in the vicinity of their camp at Civitant, and that even though Walter Sons of Wach tried to control them until Peter returned, this pissed the Franks in the camp off so much that they felt they had to seek revenge. Quote, A tumult arose among the people, and the foot soldiers unanimously addressed Reynold of Broy, Walter Sons of Wach, the other Walter of Bertoy, and Fulcher of Orléans, who were foremost in Peter's army, demanding to rise against the insolence of the Turks to avenge their brothers. But the leaders refused to set out directly until they had Peter's presence and advice. However, Godfrey Burel, master of the foot soldiers, heard their replies and claimed that these distinguished knights were cowards and very little good in war. He persistently taunted with bitter speech the men who forbade the rest of the company, to pursue the Turks, to avenge their brothers. In opposition, the leaders of the great army could not hold out against the insults and taunts of that man and his followers, and being greatly stirred by anger and indignation, they vowed to set out against the forces of the Turks in their ambushes, even if it was their fate to die in battle. Without delay, at the first sign of daybreak on Wednesday, throughout the whole camp, the knights and foot soldiers were ordered to arm themselves and the trumpeters to sound the signal blasts and all to gather together for war. Only those without weapons and the sick were left behind in the camp, with countless of the female sex. Armed then and all assembled, as many as 25,000 foot soldiers and 500 knights in armor set out on the way to the town of Nicaea, in order to provoke Duke Suleiman and the rest of the Turks to war, and to go into battle with them to avenge their fellow soldiers. Anna's and Albert's accounts also differ as to where the Turks attacked the Crusaders. Anna says they were lying in wait, while Albert says that they were just hanging out and then they noticed the Crusaders, but instead of ambushing them, they waited on a nearby plane to attack them. He describes a battle playing out, whereas Anna has the army ambushed and routed pretty much immediately. The end scene is pretty much the same though. What was left of the army fled back to the camp at Civitat, where dang near everyone was either put to the sword or enslaved. Anna actually indicates that Peter was present when this happened, and she says that her father sent warships across the strait to help him. The Latin sources are pretty unanimous though in saying that Peter was in Constantinople when all this went down, but they do agree that Alexios sent aid to the camp, though they differ in how they present Alexios. Albert says, Peter, having heard of the danger to his men and the tragedy of the slain, mourning and grieving, begged the emperor humbly in the name of Jesus Christ 
to help the few poor pilgrims who were left out of so many thousands, and not to allow them to be destroyed, deserted and desperate by so many executioners. When the emperor heard Peter's account of the calamity and the siege of his men, he was moved by pity, and he summoned his Turkopoles from all around, and all the nations under his rule, and ordered them to go with all haste across the straits, to assist the Christians who had fled and were besieged, and there to overcome and put to flight the Turks. End quote. The Gesta Francorum, for reasons we'll be getting into later, actually has a bit of an axe to grind vis-a-vis Alexios Komnenos. So Anon reports, quote, When the emperor heard that the Turks had dispersed our men in this way, great was his joy, and he gave the order that those who survived could again cross the arm, and when they came over, he took away all their weapons. End quote. Anna is surprisingly in between these two perspectives. She's obviously not critical of Alexios, but she also doesn't say her dad was moved by pity. After all, these are just some dumbass Celts. Why would he care if they got themselves killed? All the sources are pretty much in agreement that only a handful of crusaders survived, and that Peter was one of this handful. We'll wrap this story up with Guibert of Nogent's epilogue to the Peasants' Crusade. Such was the end of the group under the command of Peter the Hermit, We have followed this story without interrupting it, so that we might show that Peter's group in no way helped the others, but in fact, added to the audacity of the Turks. And now we shall return to the men we have passed over, who followed the same path that Peter did, but in a far more restrained and fortunate way. End quote. We've spent four episodes talking about the Peasants' Crusade, and maybe this seems like a bit of a waste of time. It certainly would seem that way to Guibert of Nogent, given the fact that this first wave ended in nothing but failure, and if anything, only succeeded in killing thousands of Christians throughout Hungary, the Balkans, and Western Anatolia. But the Peasants' Crusade is essential to setting the stage and the tone for what's to come. The Peasants' Crusade was everyone's first taste of this new crusading fervor that Latin Europe is eager to share with the rest of the world, and folks are starting to acclimate to this virulent violence. Their Christian neighbors, for example, have learned that these armies are dangerous. If Alexios Komnenos, for example, wasn't on high alert before, he certainly was now. If we believe the author of the Justifrancorum, he made sure to disarm the survivors of the massacre at Civitat. And when the princes arrive, he'll be taking great pains to ensure that nothing like what happened at Belgrade or Nice occurs in Constantinople. On the other side of the Bosporus, Guibert of Nogent said that Kilij Arslan's audacity had been raised. But that's actually kind of a good thing, because now he's learned that he and his Anatolian Turks don't really have much to fear from these armies. They could easily trick and massacre them if need be. So he can go and deal with more pressing matters. Whatever remnants of the Crusaders were left, they could easily be mopped up. This attitude is going to leave his western flank open to attack. We can also learn a lot from the behavior of the armies of Walter Sansevoir, Peter the Hermit, Gottschalk, Folkmar, and of course, Count Zemiko. May his bones be ground to dust. Often, both contemporaries and more modern historians draw a line between these men and fellows like Raymond of Toulouse, Ademar of Lepuy, Godfrey of Bouillon, Hugh of Vermandois, and Bohemond of Tarento, the leaders of the so-called Prince's Crusade. But when we get to it, 
we'll see that the character, composition, and attitudes of the Peasants' Crusade didn't evaporate at Civitant. Not only did many members of this first wave end up joining the second, including Peter the Hermit, who has by no means exited our story, but the motivations and impulses we've seen play out during these last four episodes will continue to be huge factors. Among these are the more pragmatic factors, like food and the ready willingness to use violence to get it. But particularly once the army reaches Syria, the themes of both revenge and apocalypse will rear their ugly heads once again. The eschatological veins present in the mentalities of the First Crusade armies is shaping up to be the focus of an upcoming episode, so we'll be fleshing out the details there in the future. For now, in discussing the role of apocalyptic thinking in the Crusade armies, Matthew Gabriel, in his article Against the Enemies of Christ, points out the distinction scholars often make between the peasants and the prince's crusades. He says, quote, It should be noted that these scholars are at least implicitly, and sometimes rather explicitly, making the peasants' crusade a distinct entity from the papally sanctioned first crusade. They are suggesting that the peasants' crusade was inspired by different factors and was composed of a different sort of person. It was to this peasants' crusade that apocalyptic sentiment was confined. Pope Urban II and the better-known leaders of the crusading armies are thus, in some sense, exonerated from the troublesome sentiments that apocalypticism seems to have excited. They were too well-versed on Augustine to subscribe to the thought that they could predict the end of time. These massacres, it seems, were all the fault of irresponsible popular preachers and senseless rabble. But that would be wrong, to begin with. This understanding of that part of the First Crusade, more commonly known as the Peasants' Crusade, does not account for much recent scholarship. The Rhenish Crusaders were not simply a murderous barbarian horde, and Emiko was not a noble fighting alongside rabble. Riley Smith and Fleury conclusively argue against just such an interpretation. The armies that assembled along the Rhine did possess a large popular element, but were also comprised of many notables and professional soldiers such as Emiko, likely in similar percentages to the armies of the Baronial Crusade. They may have left at a different time from the proper crusading armies and been subject to a different set of preachers urging them to go, but they were inspired to the same task by the same general set of ideas. The actions of the Rhenish Crusaders, including their attacks on the Jews, were very much a part of the First Crusade, not some unfortunate byproduct. The Peasants' Crusade also illustrates some fundamental facts about medieval European life at the end of the 11th century. We talked about the environmental and ecological changes that underpinned the social upheavals of the era a bit back in episode 2.8. Western Europe was fast approaching the peak of a population explosion, an explosion that is impossible to separate from the unprecedented events we've been discussing. Next time on History of the Utremer, we'll be diving back into the world of environmental history to explore how the entire existence of the Utrecht states can be slotted into much larger events at play here, namely the rebirth and expansion of Latin Christian Europe.
Hello, uh, a little tag here to mention that our next episode will be coming out not in two weeks, but in about a month. I will be skipping a release date because I'm going on holiday. Now that international travel's possible again, me and the missus have decided to take our own little journey east. So I'll be abroad and away from my computer for the last few weeks of the year. Actually, I'll be in the air on my flight back at midnight on December 31st. Turns out that last flight of the year is also one of the cheapest. Anyway, this all means that our next episode won't be available until mid-January. In the meantime, feel free to go back and re-listen. Maybe share the podcast with your loved ones. After all, nothing says holiday spirit like listening to the tales of religiously-fueled massacres, right? For the meantime, happy solstice. I'm in the southern hemisphere, so it's the summer solstice today. Um, but analytics tell me that most of my listeners are in the northern hemisphere, so happy winter solstice and a happy new year. See you folks in 2022.